1: This is the Tom Hartman
2: Program. So let's talk the real science of Santa Claus. The guy in the red suit with the pointy hat, the white furry trim, and the tall black boots with the eight flying reindeers and the bag of goodies. It goes back to a group of indigenous Arctic Circle dwellers, the Kamchateles and the Koryaks of Siberia, specifically but it's actually all the way around the North Pole. We've had Steve Larson on this program before talking about the native people of Finland as well. So Santa really does come from the North Pole. On the night of the winter solstice, the shortest day of the year, a Koryak shaman would gather hallucinogenic mushrooms called Amanita muscaria, or fly agaric in English is how we call them. These are the red mushrooms with white spots. are starting to see a parallel here. The shaman would hang them on the lower branches of pine trees to dry them out before taking them home, back to the village. Or alternatively, he could take them in and put them in a sock and hang the sock over the fireplace to dry them out. Socks and fireplaces? The problem with fly agaric, or Amanita muscaria mushrooms, is that they are poisonous. In addition to getting you high, they contain a poison. And so the way that they would get rid of the poison is they would feed them to reindeer. Reindeer love these things. And their livers have an enzyme that breaks down and detoxifies the poison in this mushroom, but does not break down the hallucinogen, which I believe is dimethyltryptamine, DMT, in the mushroom. And so the shaman would feed the mushrooms to the reindeer and then follow them around until they peed, and gather up that yellow snow, and they'd eat or drink the yellow snow as part of a religious ritual. The reindeer, by the way, love these mushrooms. They eat them whenever they can. When a shaman went out to gather the mushrooms, he would wear a red outfit with white trim or white dots on it in honor of the mushroom's colors. He'd gather the tree-dried fly agarics and some reindeer urine in a large sack, and then go back to the yurt, which was the traditional form of housing for people in that region at that time, where the villagers would gather for the solstice ceremony. But how did he get in? Well, the yurts, these are round houses, and they're covered with snow, but they do have a hole at the very top for the fire exhaust, the smoke to go out, and that's how you get in and out of a yurt in the winter. So he would go down the chimney with his sack full of reindeer urine or a sack full of mushrooms, slide down that central pole to give them to them. When you take this stuff, when you take dimethyltryptamine, DMT, it's a hallucinogen like LSD, and it makes you feel like you're flying. And the reindeer get really frisky too from eating this stuff, and they kind of look like they're flying. And one part of the legend is that when the shaman took the fly agaric, took this mushroom or the reindeer urine, that the shaman and the reindeer together would fly to the north star and get the gifts of knowledge, which they would then bring back and share with the community. That tradition then was carried down to Great Britain by the ancient Druids, and the stories got mixed up with Germanic and Nordic myths, and came over here with English settlers, and we had Turkish St. Nicholas. But even by the 1930s, there was no consensus about Santa Claus. In fact, most Americans didn't use Santa Claus in any way in celebration of Christmas. That came about with Clement clark moore's famous poem a visit from saint nicholas and then in the 1930s the thing that really kicked off santa as we know him in modern times was the coca-cola company and they did an ad they made santa fat up until that point santa's had been characterized as skinny so amazing stuff absolutely amazing stuff yes the true science of christmas is that jingle bells that's that's great thank you sean Steve in Albuquerque, listening on KABQ. Hey Steve, what's up?
3: You were talking about some of the traditions of Christmas and how they get started. Several years ago I taught as a substitute teacher the history of christmas based on a video from the history channel as everybody probably is well aware the tradition of bringing a tree inside was something that coincided with the winter solstice especially in northern europe as many people know the pope arbitrarily assigned the date of christmas because they didn't really know when christ was born as far as the season the pope arbitrarily uh, assign that to coincide with the solstice, so right. bringing the tree in is just part of the solstice now, the lighting of the tree is very interesting. The first picture to go around the world in newspaper was a picture. I'm not sure if it was the king or prince of England lighting the Christmas tree in Buckingham Palace. A, A lot of traditions of Christmas started actually from the poems was the night before Christmas. For example, the naming of the reindeer was specifically addressed in that poem, and to this day, that's the names of the reindeers santa claus being you know round and jolly and wearing a red suit and it's fascinating to think that a poem has had such a long lasting effect another one that's like that maybe is casey at the bat i mean but a lot of the traditions of christmas hanging of stockings were started because of the popularity of that poem.
2: Right, and then in the 1930s, as I recall, there was a couple of companies, one in particular, and I'm not remembering exactly which company it was, that popularized the whole Santa thing as a way of selling product.
3: Oh, uh, I'm sure that's true, yeah.
2: Thanks for the call. warn you, trigger warning, trigger warning here. Anybody who has lost a loved one to the global war on Christmas, I'm going to talk about that very thing. So if you've lost a loved one to the global war on Christmas, turn away or mute your TV. Here it is. The racist, homophobic, transphobic, xenophobic, intellectually dishonest Tucker Carlson last night declared The war on Christmas is going full tilt boogie. My words, not his. Here are his words. He says, of course it's going on, and it's being fought very fiercely here in America. That's the war on Christmas. But not just in America. The war on Christmas is a global struggle. In the Parliament of Scotland, they have a national parliament, the coffee shop has stopped selling gingerbread men. Why? Gender-specific. They're now called gingerbread people. Oh, the horror. I I don't know how we're going to deal with this. He then brings on Tammy Bruce, this right-wing radio personality who, uh, when President Obama and his wife Michelle first took office, said that they were trash. Seriously, Tammy Bruce called Obama and his wife trash as they were taking office. The guy is a law school graduate, constitutional law professor, a, a United States senator, a former Illinois state senator. He has a peckable and spotless record. But, you know, he and his wife are black, so Tammy Bruce thinks they're trash. I don't know why else she would say that anyhow. So Tucker Carlson brings her on and says, hey, let's talk about the war on Christmas. Yes, those gingerbread people. Oh, my God. How can we deal with this? This is the Tom Hartman Program. Defending America from the conservative weapons of mass deception. Tom Hartman here right with you. Tom Hartman here with you. I want to talk about the rise of paganism and the death of religion and the context, the political context, in which this is all happening, by visiting this piece that Russ Douthat, D-O-U-T-H-A-T, he's a columnist for the New York Times, and he wrote this piece titled The Return of Paganism. I refer to it as James Madison's nightmare. James Madison and Thomas Jefferson had this running disagreement for about 10 or 15 years you can find it in their correspondences, particularly their correspondences from, the, uh, 17, from around 1787, 1788, when the Constitution was being written and promoted. Jefferson was in Paris, Madison was in Virginia, and they were corresponding. And Jefferson was arguing that one of the biggest threats to American democracy would be if religious people, uh, that is to say priests or ministers, became elected officials. He even flirted with the idea of barring them from running for political office, although he concluded that that would be inappropriate, unconstitutional. But, you know, he saw that as a threat to America. If, you know, somebody like Jerry Falwell became president, James Madison wasn't so concerned about that. He didn't think that the American people were stupid enough to elect a religious leader to a political post. He instead was concerned that if the government ever started giving money to the churches or interfering with the churches in any way, that that would destroy Christianity. Now, keep in mind, Jefferson was a deist. He didn't believe the tenets of Christianity. He didn't think that Jesus was divine. He thought he was a brilliant prophet, a brilliant wise elder, but not not divine. Whereas James Madison was a Christian. I don't recall if he was a Presbyterian or... Uh, it was one of those kind of secondary mainline denominations and madison's concern about the destruction of christianity i think is exactly what we're looking at and i think it really started with the reagan administration with this outreach from the reagan bush administration to the right-wing christian communities that was led in part by the vice president bush's son george who was the outreach director to the right-wing evangelicals for the second half of the Reagan presidency and for all of his father's presidency and his father's 1988 and 1992 presidential campaigns. And what Ross is writing is that uh, institutional Christianity has weakened drastically since the 1960s. He says the people who have traditionally been sort of the lukewarm Christians, right, the people who go to Christmas and Easter at church, but that's about it, They're now saying that they have no religion or that they are spiritual but not religious. And he points out the mainline Protestant establishment, you know, the Methodists and Congregationalists and Presbyterians, they're basically powerless. They've lost a lot of their followers. And it's not that those followers all went to these big mega churches and right wing evangelical churches. It's that they've simply gone away. Now, one of the stories that explains this is that, it's called the secularization story, as societies advance, become wealthier, become more grounded in science rather than superstition, reason rather than religious philosophy, that as that happens, inevitably, people are gonna drift away from religion, saying, oh yeah, well, you know, our ancestors believed that stuff about this Bronze Age sky god who, Had to you know murder his own son in order to save us because he made a mistake with women or some you know this strange story of christianity but the problem is that the number of americans who say yes when asked if you've had a profound religious experience or awakening that redirected your life the percentage of americans who say yes is about twice today what it was in 1960. So in 1960, more people were going to church, but fewer of them were describing religious experiences. Today, twice as many people are describing religious experiences, but they're not going to church anymore. The question I'm asking and that I would invite you to discuss with me is kind of on on multiple levels. Number one, to what extent has the right-wingification of Christianity this merger of church and state that Madison so feared that we saw happen during the Reagan administration that was pushed on us by the Ralph Reeds and the Jerry Falwells and the George W. Bushes. I mean, he was the liaison between those guys and his daddy. To what extent has the right-wingification of Christianity in the United States led to basically people saying, screw that, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to have any part of that. Uh, you know i'm not interested in being part of a political church to what extent has the republican party basically destroyed christianity in the united states number 1 number 2 to what extent have you or people in your family or your friends your sphere of influence turned away from kind of official churchdom and replaced it with a personal spirituality now, i have certainly done this i used to like to go to church occasionally and I grew up going to church. My mom was very, very, quote, religious. My dad was an agnostic, but I didn't know that until he was, you know, in the last year of his life. But until he knew it, he was he was dying and he just started telling me all these things, you know. But it was an anchor for me. You know, I'd go to church and just kind of feel good. I still do. I mean, you know, sometimes when I'm traveling, if I walk by a church that's open, I'll just go in and sit in the pew and meditate for 10 or 15 minutes. I like it. But I don't go to church anymore. I I sit zazen with a bunch of people at a Zen center here in Portland on Sundays, occasionally. Louise and I do that. And I've got a, a zafu and a zabuton. I need a little cushion and pillow in my office at home that I sit and meditate in. Often using my Muse headband now, I do that a couple days a week, and then meditate without it most of the time. But it kind of helps recalibrate. You know, it keeps me on track. So I think that, and, and I, you know, every morning when I'm walking to work, I'm saying my prayers for the day. So I, I would say that spirituality has become a bigger part of my life over the last decade than since maybe I was a teenager when it was a huge part of my life. But I'm not involved with any church. Ross is talking about the fragmentation and personalization of Christianity. And he says, you know, one of the things that are kind of destroying Christianity are the prosperity gospel and Christian nationalism. He says these rule the right, and on the left, it's basically the social gospel, the United Church of Christ, which, for example, which has long had outreach to the gay community and to minority communities. So he says, is it possible that paganism is being revived, and this is the future, essentially, of what today we call Christianity, the future of spirituality in the United States. In fact, he points out there will soon be more witches in the United States, self avowed witches, than members of the United Church of Christ. Stephen uh, Smith, uh, law professor at the University of San Diego, wrote a book called Pagans and Christians in the City Culture Wars from the Tiber to the Potomac. And he says, behind the scenes, what's actually happening is the return to a pagan religious conception that divinity is actually in the world, not outside the world, that if you want to find the actual vibrating spirit of all life, open the window and look at the natural world around us, that increasingly you're embracing nature. This was Jefferson's religion. In fact, he wrote it into the Declaration of Independence. He wrote, nature's God, And then the Declaration of Independence, John Adams scratched it out and wrote the Christian God. And Jefferson scratched that back out again and and again wrote in nature's God. And so here you have nature's God explicitly in the Declaration of Independence. So are we returning basically to the spirituality that animated and informed the founders we're not. I, you know, I, I. it seems to me that we are. I mean, I, I find God in nature. My spiritual life is mostly in nature. He says, this sees the purpose of religion and spirituality is more therapeutic, seeking harmony with nature and happiness in the every day, that every day is divinely endowed and shaped, meaningful and not random, a place where we can truly hope to be at home. That's my sense of it. And I find this just, just fascinating and I'm wondering, what you think and what your experience has been where do we go with this and what impact is the increasing politicization of religion having on religion itself it seems to me that the the whole right-wing thing is actually damaging christianity this is the tom hartman program what does that tell us about the future of politics what does that tell us about the future of religion what does that tell us about the ability of the republican party to leverage religion julie in austin texas hey julie what's on your mind today
4: your topic that you began the show with is mm. something that's dear to my heart. It's how I—I've always considered myself a seeker, and I very much identified with your book, The Prophet's Way. There's a lot of that that we have in common. And I wanted to bring up, as just to add to the conversation, because I think you were trying to get into the politics of, of religion. One thing I remember back when I was in the evangelical movement, that Pat Robertson in the 700 Club— they knew that they couldn't win the popular vote. So they focused on the judges. They set up an organization called the American Center for Law and Justice, mm-hmm. of which Jay Sekolo is was the head. I don't know if he still is, but you know, Jay Sekolo now is one of Trump's lawyers. But their whole agenda was to change policy to the conservative religious policy through the judges because they knew right. they couldn't do it by the vote
2: to bring and in pat judges robertson, who would bring church into state
4: yeah exactly exactly i mean pat robertson even wrote a book about the their strategy of doing that yeah so i mean that's not something that i've heard anybody talk about but i remember that that was a part of it
2: that's um, a really important and- point that's a really important point and, and it's like in 1979, the Southern Baptist Convention sued the federal government because of the Hyde Amendment, the, you know, the Hyde Amendment that says that uh, federal funds can't be used for abortions. And they said that the enactment of the Hyde Amendment two years earlier was, in fact, a triumph of Catholicism infiltrating itself into government. The government had adopted Catholic doctrine. Within six months after that lawsuit, Jerry Falwell and his friends had decided that the mainstream Protestant churches I believe he was a Southern Baptist also, really needed to embrace the anti-abortion movement because it was growing, and it was growing rapidly, and it had a lot of political juice around it, and this could be their entree into big money and big politics, and so... You know, literally the same year that the church was suing the government saying that this anti-abortion policy and at law was Catholic doctrine, the evangelical movement flipped and became anti-abortion. And then Reagan came into office and boom, we were off to the races. And they've been using religion. Abortion is kind of a proxy for that to go after government ever since. It's pretty remarkable.
4: Well, I mean, the goal is, I mean, the reason they say that America was a Christian nation originally, which we know it wasn't. I mean, yeah. that's why freedom of religion is in the... It's in the, the Constitution twice. Documents. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, I mean, there's a reason that that's there. We were never a Christian nation, but their mantra is that it was a Christian nation, and they want to bring it back to a Christian nation. In right. other words, they want to be in power, and they want to have everybody else live according to their rules and their faith, whatever that is. Well, one one
2: of the hallmarks of fascist thought is yearning for a a noble past that actually never existed. Exactly. And that's, that's what they're pushing. Julie, I need to move along, but thank you for the call. And thanks for watching us there in Austin, Texas. Tip in Vancouver, Washington. Hey, Tip, what's up?
1: Good morning from just north of the Columbia River. So I had a profound experience. I'm going to be turning 70 in April, but I remember this as if it were this morning when I was 10 years old on february twenty ninth I was at a meeting. I heard the Gospel, and I accepted Jesus. Now, coming up to that point, I believed that getting to heaven was being good, but then the Gospel that I heard that morning told me that we 're all sinners, but Jesus paid the price for those sins. those have having been said i 'm a big fan of Jimmy Carter, mm-hmm. and I was involved in an evangelical church a few years ago, quite heavily. And George Bush was running for president at the time, and Ralph Reed's Christian Coalition dropped a bunch of pamphlets in the church, and it made it easy for a person like myself who was working full-time and had kids and all their activities to figure out who to vote for, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so when the bombs were dropped on Baghdad, I woke up in the morning to hear the news shock and all. Yes, I was shocked because... I believe that George Bush was a Bible-reading person, at least he confessed he was. But obviously that was an act that Jesus always spoke about. How do you treat your enemies? You know the words. Yeah. So that having been said, real quick from one of Jesus' dissertations, Beware the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly the ravenous wolves. Yeah, this is from John. Know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from the bushes, figs, or thistles, as they. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the rotten tree bears bad fruit. So I draw that dichotomy that Jesus was talking about between Jimmy Carter and George Bush. I can't look at somebody's eyes and see their soul, like Bush professed to be able to do. With Putin, yeah. That having been said, there is a growing segment of the evangelical population that is embracing the good works that the Democratic Party are doing. After I saw the bombs dropped on Baghdad, I started studying politics a lot closer, and that's when I discovered you on Air America. Hmm. And I was trying to be as concise as possible, so I'll shut up now if you want. <laughs> No, no. Well
2: done. Well done, Tip. Thank you for sharing your story with us. It's an increasingly common one. Tip, brilliant. Thank you. Lewis in Evoca, New York. Hey, Lewis.
5: Hi, Tom. Um, I just wanted everybody to go back to their art history book and look at the Sistine Chapel ceiling, mm-hmm. where God, is, in my art history book from 1970, says God is reaching out from a cloud right. to touch Adam's finger. Well, if you study it, you'll see the cloud is in the shape of a human brain, is seen from the side. So oh, really that, means that Michelangelo was saying, in the Vatican, that God is in your mind, not in the sky.
6: Oh, that's amazing. i at
5: the time. That's and amazing. the last thing I want to say is the new golden rule has become get the gold.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, you yeah, know, the, the old joke, those who have the gold rule. And sadly, it's kind of been a piece of, of history forever. I, I'm going to have to go back and look I, at it. The... I
5: saw this on uh, Discovery Channel last year, and I was going to call you. Really? So, somebody pointed it we're out. We're talking the... about religion, and so I skipped it. But once you look at it, it's hard not to notice it.
2: Wow. Well, Michelangelo yeah. was a bit of a heretic in a lot of regards. So, uh, Right. Yeah. But Remarkable. he did
6: do the PA tie, you know.
2: So. Yeah. Well, you know, it was a good gig, and he got paid well for it. Right. Listen, <laughs> thanks a lot for the call. It's great to hear from you, and thanks for watching us there in New York State.
5: You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives.
2: Fair and only slightly unbalanced. So, would you like to watch the Tom Hartman program? All three hours of our program anytime you'd like? Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Tom Hartman, T-H-O-M-H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N, all run together. And you become a supporter of the program through Patreon. You have access to the full three-hour show anytime you want. And special content that we put up every single week that is unique specifically to our Patreon page. So check it out. Patreon.com slash Patreon.com. Tom Harmon, Thank you. We used to think new year, new me. Yeah, right. More like new year, new wrinkles. With every passing year, we all look older, but all that has changed now thanks to this magic in a bottle Plexiderm Rapid Reduction Serum. It's like you turned back the clock instead of ringing in another new year. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crows, feet, and under-eye bags in minutes. All you have to do is apply this powerful serum to problem areas, and within 10 minutes, voila, a new you. And the best part, no surgery or Botox involved. It's all natural. Ring in 2020 knowing Plexiderm is going to give you smooth, younger-looking skin in minutes. And the best part is, it goes unclear, so nobody even knows you're using it. Leave your under-eye bags and wrinkles in 2019 with Plexiderm. Go to TriPlexiderm.com and use my code HARTMAN, H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N, for 50% off plus an additional 10 bucks off. That's right, half off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code HARTMAN. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit TriPlexiderm.com today and use the code HARTMAN at checkout. That's TriPlexiderm.com, code HARTMAN.
5: Wayne in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Hey, Wayne. How you doing, Tom? Happy holidays, my man. Thank you. I think the salvation of humanity, if we don't cause our extinction, is that man is gonna have a mass exodus from planet Earth. And that is gonna be our salvation. You mean as in getting on spaceships and going to outer space? And we'll be on Mars in 2030 And pretty soon, there's got to be people going into the universe. And I think that's going to be our salvation. Once we leave the planet Earth, we're going to see how precious and vital the planet is and how we need to keep it in a pristine manner. And I think if we get another perspective outside, we'll start dealing with the internal issues You know that we face here on Earth.
2: Well, that's what we got with the marble Earth photograph. There was a measurable shift in how people thought of uh, ecology and the biosphere after that picture from outer space was published and led to the very first environmental laws. With regard to space exploration, you know, Stephen Hawking agrees with you, Wayne. So you're a pretty good company, although he's not asserting that all humans are going to leave Earth and that's going to save the human race, but rather a small number of humans, uh, you know, relative to our seven billion population will leave Earth. And God only knows what will happen to the rest of us. But we'll see where it goes. Wayne, thanks for the call. Hey, Jeff in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Jeff, what's on your mind today? Thanks right, for watching John, Free Speech TV. Today? Good, good. What's up?
7: Well, I'll tell you what happened to me about four or five years ago. I was at a Methodist church mm-hmm. in, in, right in Lancaster, and at the end of the sermon, the minister said, Now, Election Day is coming up Tuesday. We expect all of our men in the church to vote Republican. Just came Honest right to God? To yeah,
2: yeah. This was or, a Methodist church, you said?
7: Yes, and that blew me United, United Methodists? I always thought they were a little bit more they were not left-leaning, but a little bit more liberal. Yeah. Now, and then. Well, that's the church I, I, I grew up at. Yeah, I, I, it blew me away, and I yeah. just looked at my wife and I said, "We're never coming here again." Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, I buried one of my Vietnam vet bros, you know, and I went to, to service there, but I would—I couldn't believe it. Yeah. I went there for that one time, and then I think the other thing is. <laughs> I grew up here but I've been all over the place. I lived in New York for a while. I went to school in Philly for a while after I got out of service. Uh evangelical when I was a kid I went to a church called Trinity Evangelical Church.
6: Mm-hmm.
7: And it wasn't it wasn't like evangelicalism the way we talk about it today. I went to Sunday school there, my parents went to church there, they had a youth group. Now, I'm an older guy, okay, but I think what they've done, they've really politicized that. I think when you said about taking things too far to the right, they're very rigid. They're very fundamentalist in the way they think, mm. talk, act, and judge. People don't like to be judged like that. Yes, people are more intelligent today. I always had a problem with the Adam and Eve story because I thought, if you put two two young people in that situation, what do you think they're going to do? Right. But I mean... Right. Maybe, I don't know, but, but guess what, Tom? I pray every single day, and I am a believer, but I just can't. I I don't know how many churches I try it out, and it, it's, it just doesn't work out for yeah. me.
2: You know, when I pray, there's the intellectual part of my brain that says there's nobody listening. There's the the kind of spiritual part of my brain, I suppose is the right word, that says... Um, whether there's a specific anthropomorphic sky god listening or whether it's simply all of life that I'm interconnected and interpenetrated by, interconnected with. Um, Simply by saying these words or having these images in my mind of the people for whom I'm praying, I'm sending out an energy. I'm connecting with them in a way that's meaningful.
7: Yeah, and I believe that's possible.
2: Yeah, I I think so, too. I mean, my prayer is probably more in a Christian science context. In, In Christian science, you're, you're, it's not really intercessory prayer. Well, I shouldn't characterize Christian science. I read Quimby's stuff, which I thought was better than Mary Baker Eddie, but that was 40 years ago. But, uh, you know, the sense that my own personal power is being or life force or whatever is in some way being given or I'm a channel for that life force to be given to the other person and that channel is being opened by prayer. And it's also an opportunity. I mean, I, I pray for all the members of my family, I, ultimately for the whole world. And sometimes I end up yeah, you know, praying yeah, for I even Donald do Trump, part. you know, may he awaken, you know. Good. But it's also kind of a psychologically therapeutic thing. It's like I'm every he day, I talk to my mom and dad who are both dead. Every day I'm in contact with all these people. And I don't know if that makes me crazy or if that just makes me a normal person. I think, I think so. Jeff, thanks for the conversation and the story. It's a fascinating one. I appreciate the call. I think this is a really interesting topic. A, how much longer will the Republican Party be able to use right-wing evangelical Christianity as a base? And B, to what extent are these, you know, this doubling of people who claim that they've had a spiritual experience but don't go to church, how much are they informing the Democratic Party's spiritual politics with matthew 25 kind of stuff you know the disciples were hanging out with jesus and they said how do we go to heaven you know we want to hang out with you when we all die and he said oh it's really simple at the end i'm going to be sitting there at the throne judging and separating the sheep from the goats the goats are going to go to hell and the sheep are going to go with me to heaven and well they were like okay who's who and he says well The sheep, I will say to them, you know, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me in. When I was thirsty, you gave me water. And I think that's the list. And then he said, he'll turn to the goats and he'll say, and this is what freaked out the disciples. He said, you know, I'll turn to the goats and say, you know, I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, you didn't give me water. I was in prison, you didn't visit me. I was a stranger, you didn't welcome me in. And therefore, off to hell with you. And the disciples at that point totally freaked out because they were like, Jesus, we've never seen you naked. We've never seen you hungry. We've never seen you thirsty. We've never seen you in jail. We've never had an opportunity to help you in these ways. Does that mean we're screwed? We're going to hell. And he pointed out the children, the poor people, the outcasts of society. And he said, as you do to the least among these, you've done to me. I mean, if that's not the progressive message, I don't know what is. And so is there even a danger embedded for progressives and Democrats here if Democrats and progressives start saying, okay, we're Matthew 25 Christianity. We're down with that. This is our thing. We like that, that worldview that that Jesus articulated in Matthew 25. And then, you know, churches start preaching. I mean, Jeff just called in a minute ago and he said, that he had been at a Methodist church a couple of years ago, and he said the minister from the pulpit said, now go out there and vote Republican. And he was just slack-jawed. He just, you know, amazed. I mean, that's the church I grew up in. I never heard politics when I was a little kid. Now, I haven't been in a Methodist church since my parents died, but... So anyhow, the question is, if the Democrats start embracing this, and there are progressive churches, the United Church of Christ is a very progressive church, Unitarian Universalists, the, you know, they're not religious in the conventional sense, but very progressive church. If the Democrats start embracing that, are they going to end up ruining a religion the same way the Republicans have ruined right-wing Christianity? Or is it that the Republican influence on right-wing Christianity or on fundamentalist Christianity has been basically to bring this so-called prosperity gospel? You know, give money to our megachurch, help the pastor buy a new private jet, and you will get rich. And no longer, you're going to go to heaven. No longer, you know, you're going to be among the sheep. Now it's, no, money will pour out of the sky for you. And, you know, uh, a lot of people are saying this is just ruining Christianity, ruining the Republican Party. Does the Democratic Party face a similar danger? Jay in Tucson, Arizona. Hey, Jay, what's up?
8: Hi there. I uh, wanted to discuss the religious people who justify their bad behavior by their religion. And I want to point out that Abraham in Genesis, who's revered by Christians, Jews, and Muslims, mm. do you remember what Abraham did that impressed God? He welcomed strangers. Right. He invited them to rest, and he fed them.
7: And they yeah, he said, hey, that. who
8: are you guys and where are you going? And they said, oh, we're angels, yeah. and God wants you to be the father of a great nation. So the Bible has precedents for welcoming strangers. Right? Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's it's also in Matthew 25. I was a stranger and you took me in.
8: You yeah. Um, yeah, he told that, but I was thinking, that's Abraham. That was his good deed yeah. that impressed God.
2: Right. Bill in Princeton, Indiana. Hey, Bill, what's on your mind today? Thanks for watching Free Speech.
5: I really enjoy your program, but talking about the church, what you're looking for, I've been listening to everybody, and what you're looking for is the ELCA Lutheran Church, and EL is Evangelicals of America. Now, Mm -hmm. they got several senates, but the uh, American Senate is the liberal, okay? I've even had a uh, gay woman pastor, Mm -hmm. okay? And what people don't understand is you need Sunday school, that's what you have to have so you can study this and find out about it. But a theologian, have you ever listened to a theologian? I have, yeah. Yes, and how much your thoughts change Mm -hmm. on what's going on. And another thing, what people have to realize that they're not realizing is the Old Testament is the law, okay? That's what it's meant for, the law, okay? And then jesus
2: comes well he also well, said not one jot or tittle shall pass from the law yeah that's not right. one crossing of the but, t or dotting of the i so in other words the law still stands which is but well, we've largely rejected that law people wear clothing made out of two different kinds of fabrics they eat pigs and, and shellfish yeah but the new testament changes all that well no that's it not changed. what jesus said and uh, so that's you've got to he said he was the, the fulfillment fact. of the law but he didn't set the law aside
5: Well, the most important part you're missing is faith is the only answer, faith. When you feel that faith, you know it, okay? Well, that's getting
2: back to my original point, that what we're seeing in the United States, Bill, is the replacement of structured, organized, catechismical religion being replaced by a fundamental spirituality that is grounded in personal experience
5: them are called feel-good
2: churches which the ones that people go to because they think they should go to church every week or the ones that people go to because the they feel go good
5: and, and play music and do all kind of other stuff instead of reading the gospel in a, uh, in a lutheran church it's like the catholic okay
2: well sort understand of understand i mean martin luther was okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he took on the Catholics. He took on the church. But yeah, I get, yeah. I get your point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was, that okay. was the, ah. this was the beginning of Protestantism. You know, he was the first protester, essentially, when he nailed his 99 theses to the church in, what was it, Cobalt? Uh, no, Coburg? I forget where the church was. Anyway, Bill, thank you for the call. Excellent point. Is Madison's nightmare materializing and in a strangely partisan way? Are there lessons in this for us? And what does it mean for us personally, too? I mean, you know, are we actually living in a time, you know, for example, there, there are some people who were chronicles of the Roman Empire who chronicled the fact that at, at a certain point, Romans stopped professing that they believed in the various gods in the Roman pantheon, but they continued to participate in the rituals because, hey, it's ritual. People like ceremony. It's, it's kind of wired into us. Chaz in Lakewood, Washington. Hey, Chaz, what's on your mind?
5: Drove you comrade.
2: Yeah, it's a beautiful day in Trumpistan. What's up? <laughs> I believe there is a God, but I
1: can't believe in the works written by the hand of man or, or a system that's been corrupted by the religion industrial complex, if you will, or the party of Trump that claims to be
2: Christian, yet defy everything Christ did. You ever read the Book of Thomas, Chaz? Your book? No, no, no. The, there are five gospels. In fact, uh, Peter Funk wrote a brilliant book called The Five Gospels, and Elaine Pagels has done a lot of work on this. And the Book of Thomas is one of the five. It's just the early church decided, church fathers in in three hundred sixty or whatever the year was, decided not to include it in the canon. You know, in the in the official Bible. But the book of Thomas has, it's the quotes of Jesus. And a lot of them are parallel to quotes that you'll find in the other four Gospels. But things like, lift a rock, I am there. Split wood, you will find me. In other words, you know, Jesus saying that he's part of everything that's alive, everything, well, everything that is creation. And, you know, that's pretty, pretty uh, deep stuff.
1: I would like to have read it. Uh, I just, you know, described to the philosophy that Voltaire said, if God did not exist, it would to invent them, and I believe that we did. If you put a yeah. group of cells together, it cooperates it becomes something bigger. Tom, the
5: cells of God.
2: Yeah, people, right? Or all life yeah, forms, or maybe all of creation, yeah. yeah. I subscribe yeah. to the kind of physics notion, you know, that, that matter is slowed down energy, that energy exists in a whole spectrum of frequencies, that the most subtle of those frequencies the most subtle of those frequencies is love or consciousness and and that's what literally everything in creation is made of i'll buy that yeah okay Chaz, thanks for the call sheila in west chicago hey sheila
7: what's up well i'm as usual you are so topical i uh recently was elected to a traditionally republican county board here in the outskirts of chicago Whoa. and one of the first things we wanted. To to discuss as the biggest amount of Democrats ever on that board mm. was the invocation that they start our meeting with.
3: Oh,
2: that's interesting. Um, the opening prayer.
7: I'm sh- yes, I'm sure this is going to be a discussion going forward. And just want to say I'm listening to all of the discussion that you're having. And if you could give me a direction on why we should not. You know, we've talked about the different religions and the fact that some are not religious at all. And uh, but, yes, they are digging their heels in on this issue.
2: Yeah. Here's this is from uh, James Madison. The purpose of separation of church and state is to keep forever from these shores the ceaseless strife that has soaked the soil of Europe in blood for centuries. Notwithstanding the general progress made within the last two centuries in favor of this branch of liberty and the full establishment of it in some parts of our country, there remains in others a strong bias toward the old error that without some sort of alliance or coalition between government and religion, neither can be duly supported. Such indeed is the tendency to such a coalition and such its corrupting influence on both the parties that the danger cannot be too carefully guarded against and in a government that's
7: a wonderful place
2: yeah and in a government of opinion like ours the only effectual guard must be found in the soundness and stability of the general opinion on the subject every new and successful example therefore of a perfect separation between ecclesiastical and civil matters is of great importance and i have no doubt that every new example will succeed as every past one has done in showing that religion and government will both exist in greater purity the less they are mixed together. This is from his July 10th, 1822 letter to Edward Livingston. You can find it in the writings of James Madison. And there's, it just goes on and on and on. I mean, I, I can give you dozens of quotes from Madison. In fact, Madison's first official act of office when he became president, or one of his first official acts, it was his first veto, was a piece of legislation that was passed. Now this was, there was a religious revival going on around the time that Madison became president in 1809. and. The revival kind of hit its peak in the 1820s, but was a bill that would allocate money for the care of homeless and indigent people. There was a poorhouse in Washington, D.C. that was run by the federal government that fed people, clothed people, and, and sheltered people. And this bill would have taken that money that the government was using to run the poorhouse and instead given it to several of the Washington, D.C. churches so that they could run the poorhouses. And Madison vetoed that, saying that this would set a terrible precedent of the government giving money to churches because he was so afraid of the corruption of religion. So, Sheila, thank you for the call. It's great to hear from you. Nathan in Dallas, Texas. Hey, Nathan, what's up?
5: Yes, as usual, uh, listening on hold. um when you said, "Have you listened to the? Uh, have you read the book of Thomas?" I, I nearly dropped my phone laughing. When he asked if it was your book, yeah. Um, it, uh, I just wanted to point out that America is still the most religiously devout country in the world. But well,
2: at least at among point, the at, the developed countries. No, no, no
6: at some point. The, the
5: religion was switched. There was a switcheroo, and capitalism mm. and Christianity were switched out. So the one true American religion is capitalism, and that ah. is what we follow blindly. Yeah,
2: and so that's the that state is, religion. That fits all of the paradigms that you can possibly line up. Uh, right, it's a belief in something happen. that's unseen. There's no evidence that it actually works. It's, it's yeah. Blind, blind, blind faith. Blind faith, yeah, there you go. That's that's okay. Do we have a state religion? Is it capitalism? That's a great question. Veronica in Chapel, Nebraska. Hey, Veronica, what's up?
8: Hi, Tom. On religion, hmm. there's this thing where every church that I've gone to, you know, that is Christian, seems to think that if you ask God for Christ for forgiveness, then you're forgiven. You don't have to change your behavior. You just have to, have to ask for forgiveness.
2: Yeah, this is kind of the uh, battle that I think James engaged, uh, you know, the, the phrase, and I believe it's from the book of James, or James's letter, uh, is, uh, you know, faith without acts is dead.
8: Yeah. And I find that in every religion, you know, they rape their children and beat them and are nasty to anybody who's not in their religion. Mm-hmm and i don't believe that any of us are better than anybody else
2: there's almost an element of in-group stuff here it's like if you go to a republican meeting and you proclaim your hatred of democrats and your embrace of capitalism or something they'll say oh he's one of us he's he's made the confessional statement and you know religion's kind of the same thing you know you make the confession and oh yeah you're one of us
8: and the other thing is that the bibles out there have been co-edited and written by governments
2: and yeah and well, the roman government specifically and by people excellent points all veronica thank you for the call richard in lincoln nebraska hey richard you, you say i'm misrepresenting religion how so
3: i'm a recently retired united methodist pastor mm-hmm. and some of us are far far more liberal than what you're making it sound
2: Well, I grew up in the United Methodist Church. I always thought it was a liberal church. We had one caller who called earlier and said he was in a Methodist church, and the preacher said, now go out and vote Republican. I don't think that tars the entire church.
5: Yeah, because I would never do anything like that.
2: Yeah,
3: yeah. And nobody that I know, I don't think, would ever do that.
2: And yet it's being done from the pulpit on a daily basis in evangelical churches.
3: Yeah, (laughs) yeah. But we're not evangelicals.
2: Yeah. Well, what does Um, that do, though, to 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 the other Christian churches? I mean, you know, a lot of people can't distinguish between the North Lansing Church of God and the North Lansing United Methodist Church. You know, it's um, yeah, that's that's a
3: major problem.
2: So how do you how do you as a Methodist minister? How do you deal with it? How how do you address that when when people in your congregation lobby you to become political?
3: Uh, Well, that's not really happened i would just have to say you know vote your conscience
2: yeah that's interesting so in the methodist church you didn't you didn't experience that kind of pressure that's fascinating richard thank you for sharing your story with us and thank you for calling in uh and i agree uh, religion is not monolithic it's not all one thing it's not all of one nature so yeah. I personally think this turn toward paganism is actually a really good thing.
5: You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archive.
2: Because like I said, if you read the book of Thomas, you find what we call paganism today right there in the words of Jesus. And and I think you'll find it in lots of other places in the Bible as well. Doug in Fort Collins, Colorado. Hey, Doug, what's up?
5: Hey, Tom, how you doing? Good. My seasonal greeting is happy, happy, joy, joy. So I don't okay. offend anybody. <laughs> Thank and, you. Uh, And uh, I always contribute to your show because if we don't do it, nobody will. So I have to get out there and donate. I wanted to say how they arbitrarily set Christmas on like the 25th, you know, because of the short days. Mm -hmm. My understanding was they knew Jesus was born May 4th. There's a lot of evidence to back that up. Well, I've seen March
2: also as March and April, but more often March described, but
5: could be May 4th. I don't know. It could have been March. You know, I'm really not the best. They both begin with an M. I just knew it was in that area. Yeah. So I always kind of celebrate Christmas on Cinco de Mayo. Oh, and, uh, interesting. This.
2: <laughs> yeah. so. Now, Cinco de Mayo has to do with the Mexican Revolution, doesn't it? I mean, isn't that the date uh, the Mexican it, Revolution it was, either kicked uh, off or, or, won, or a won a battle? It, was, it was ah, my Yeah, Nate says date, it was they it won the a battle before, against so the imperialists. Ago. Yeah, got it. Hey, Thanks, Doug. Sure. Good talking to you. And happy holidays to you. I mean, Merry Christmas, whatever is appropriate for you. Irene in Jacksonville, North Carolina. Hey, Irene, what's up?
4: I just wanted to clear up, first of all, the author of The Night Before Christmas was Clement Seymour.
2: Clement Seymour. Thank you.
4: The Christmas tree became popularized in England during the reign of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. Albert was German, and trees were already done in Germany, Mm -hmm. uh, and he brought that tradition to the marriage, and then it took off like one So was that
2: mid or late 19th century? Because that's when they started publishing photographs.
4: Right. Exactly. Very good. And yeah, in fact, in fact, the first Christmas, he hung several trees from the ceiling and then over tables and brought the children in. And of course, they lit the candles and everything. It was
2: very interesting. Yeah. Cool. Irene, thank you. Thank you. How we have we the smartest listeners on earth, I'm telling you. Thank you, Irene. Raul in Reseda, California. Hey, Raul, what's up?
3: Hey, first time caller. I just wanted to say that Christmas is the biggest lie on earth. Jesus was not born on that day as the winter softless. And um, the Catholic Church forced it in the whole world, and they killed over 50 million people in their history during the Dark Ages, anyone who opposed them. That's how all these festivals, they were spread throughout the world. I'm a Christian, eh? I'm a Christian, but I know Jesus was not born on that day
2: right and i think that most scholarship these days that concludes that jesus actually was one person who actually was born suggests that it was in the spring because that was when the taxes were levied in um, bethlehem or galilee or whatever that you know that part of the of what is now israel is
3: if you if you go through the prophecies of the bible jesus is the passover lamb Mm. so on the passover you have to sacrifice a lamb that was born the right. Passover before. And, and Passover year, is around, right? or is around Easter time.
2: And, was... Yeah, I, I agree. And in fact, Easter was, I think, appropriated from the Jewish Passover, you know, and put into that time. And that was, you know, the, the, the supposed resurrection. Rahul, well, thanks for the call. Yeah. Sheila in Talent, Oregon. Hey, Sheila, you wanted to address paganism?
0: Yeah, I don't know if I would address it as paganism, that I'm a pagan. Christianity I think I hold Christianity at least used as a tool very responsible for a lot of the problems we have the use of God to have wars from the Crusades to the invasions of the Western world
2: what was the doctrine um, that was used to uh,
0: manifest destiny. manifest
2: destiny thank you to destroy yeah. the Native Americans
0: and and I think to pagan the word pagan it's a, the classic Latin, of a pagan is a villager, a civilian, a non combatant, mm-hmm. also of the country, of the land. I mean, it's the person that could pick up the soil and taste it and smell it and was connected to the earth. It's your gods were in the earth. You were no better than the deer you hunted, so you gave thanks for it giving its life to you, the way the indigenous, and we were all indigenous once. Mm -hmm. I'm indigenous maybe to my ancestry is to three continents. But if you were indigenous to Germany, you had a special bond to the animals there that you were connected to. And on this continent, you were more connected to the land, and when you were that way, you cared more about it when I was 12, I had the mumps. I had read every freaking book in the house. So my mother said, here. And she didn't really want to, but she said, read this. You know, she wanted me out of her way. So I was reading, it was the Bible. And I said, well, what should I read? And she said, well, why don't you try Psalms? It's the only thing I found that gave her any mm-hmm. comfort. But I started at the beginning, because that's where you start with books. And I couldn't finish Genesis. I found things that, I, that were contradictory, but then they said that man had dominion over all life, like he was better, Mm -hmm. Uh, that's where I closed the book and it wasn't any good and I picked up comics. Which which raises a really
2: interesting question, Sheila. Do you think that the rise of, let's call it neo-paganism, and the insertion of it into modern day religion, the spirituality that associates us with the natural world and the natural world with divinity, that that could be one of the things that animates the environmental movement and helps us save the planet? I do.
0: Until we all get in touch on some level with our indigenous heart, I don't think that this planet, because we use Christianity and our superior God connection made in our image to destroy the planet, to say it's okay. And maybe some are working towards the rapture, I don't know. My belief system is more connected to the earth. I guess I would say I follow the red road. I cannot see myself more worthy of life than the bear or the deer. I am weaker than all of them. All humans are weaker. Than the wildlife that surround us, as, as a general rule, they're more adapted to something. Where we are is our intellect and, you know, making tools and knowing how to use them to keep ourselves alive. Right. So I don't say we can go back to living that way, but if we don't connect to the planet as a living, breathing mm-hmm. thing and everything on it, and what you said about Jesus saying, when I slip the wood, I am there that, okay.
2: Otherwise we're toast. Sheila, we're hitting the break. Thank you for the call. We were just uh, uh, talking with Sheila. She was suggesting that the thing that might save the earth is this mixing of traditional pagan concepts that is that divinity can be found in the tree outside in the in the sky in the not as in an anthropomorphic sky god but just literally in the sky the birds flying by the grass under our feet the air that we breathe that it's all alive it's all divine it's all what is and the more we immerse ourselves in that perspective and that understanding the more likely we are to save this earth and thus save the human race from extinction Cliff in Canyon Country, California. Hey, Cliff, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind?
5: Uh, On top of everything else with uh, Mr. Trump, I guess he's not going to have any more love letters from
2: Kim John Owen, huh? Kim came out and just explicitly said we are not going to get rid of our nukes until you get rid of yours basically until there's no more nuclear threat and he didn't even specify what that meant it wasn't like oh you know until you get the nuclear weapons away from the Korean Peninsula I mean you could infer from what he said or at least I inferred from what he said that he wasn't gonna get rid of his nukes until the United States destroyed all of ours all of them not
5: surprised he's a horrible negotiator Trump is yeah yeah,
2: Kim yeah, is a pretty damn good
5: negotiator, apparently. <laughs> so, Anyways, I'll get right to it. How long have humans been here? Like two hundred thousand years, maybe over a million, little over a million years. I think uh, the, the bones of Lucy. Yeah, they, you know, in our modern
2: form, I think the the broad consensus is somewhere between two hundred and fifty to three hundred fifty thousand years.
5: Okay, good. So, the animal kingdom. How many hundreds of millions of years they've been here, right? Well, the animal
2: kingdom, you know, goes back well, more than five hundred million years because there were animals, there were even mammals before the Great Dying, the Permian mass extinction, and a very small number of them survived, and pretty much everything came out of
5: that. But yeah, right. Okay, so basically, what's our legacy going to be, Tom? Yeah, the twentieth and twenty-first century humans virtually wiping them all away, killing them off. We and our
2: livestock animals and our pets represent 96% of all mammalian species on Earth, um, which is mind-boggling. It is so time for humans to go to a plant-based diet, stop eating all this meat, which is just destroying the environment and the world, and get off fossil fuels and wake the hell up and start controlling our own population. I mean, our, our population is ex- is continuing to explode. You, you look at a Petri dish at a colony of bacteria and you can see this moment of amplification when it just goes absolutely nuts until they consume all the food and then it dies. And we're on the edge of that, so.